picture, if you will, an upcoming director on the verge of stardom, a debut movie for a multi-million dollar television franchise, and studio notes that resulted in the deaths of three actors. Were the lives lost on the set of Twilight Zone the movie Victims of Extreme Negligence or Murder? We discuss next on Death in Entertainment. Live from Los Angeles. 911, what is your emergency? Here in Hollywood now. The two counts of murder, injury, and death. Oh my God! Shocking new details that has stunned the entertainment world. Um, this makes me a little nervous. The hair stood up on my arms. Just like in the movies. <gasps> what do you call this thing anyway? Death in entertainment. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to our number one episode, huh? Death and Entertainment. My name is Kyle Plouffe. My name is Mark Mulcairn. And I'm Alejandro Dowling. And we are Death and Entertainment. Uh, so pretty much what we're going to do to start every episode is go into kind of the pop culture at the time so we can build the world so you know what exactly was happening in the world of entertainment at this time. Summer of 1982. So the top 100 billboard, uh, we got some great tunes. The number one was Eye of the Tiger because the Rocky Three had just come out. Number two is Rosanna by Toto. Oh, good song. With no Africa, by the way. It's, that, was that later? I don't know if it was before or after, but... Wait, wait, do you, you, mean, do you think Rosanna should have included the song Africa? Is that what yes. you're saying? <laughs> it should have been a double, like an like Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> yeah, like a double track. I just didn't know where you were going. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. Number three was Hurt So Good by John Cougar Mellencamp. Oh, baby. That's when he was John Cougar. So then he went good. by John Mellencamp later. Yeah. Number four, another great band, but not one of their best songs. Hold Me by Fleetwood Mac. Very forgettable song, in my opinion. Hot B said. Uh, Daz Band, which I didn't realize this was their name. I don't know if they're a one-hit wonder. This is me being completely brick? ignorant. Uh, brick? Let It Whip. Oh. Land It Whip. Do they have a song called Brick? Uh, ben Folds does. Oh. Do you just assume every every band has a song called Brick? You sure this isn't Whip It? Yeah. Let It Whip. Okay, yeah. Let It Whip. Got it. All night. Mm-mm. Uh, the number one movie during July this week, um, which was July 23rd is when the incident in 1982 uh, is when it happened. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas with Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. Wow. Interesting. That's my favorite movie. <laughs> yeah, I bet it is because <laughs> Burt's mustache, right? It's a stash. Yeah. Uh, the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas broke Conan the Barbarian's record for highest weekend debut for an R-rated film, which I thought was interesting. Fuck off, Conan. 9.6 And I mean O'Brien when I say that. <laughs> wow. You know what famous, famous quote came out of that? You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here? And that came from that movie. That came from that movie. We'll have to do some research on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come at me, you motherfuckers. If you, if you disagree with the, what I'm saying right now, it's I'll called... meet you in a Ralph's parking lot near my house. <laughs> It's called a Mark fact. Yeah. Uh, the books that were big that year was uh, Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl, this guy. Roald Dahl? What? How do you say it? You said Road, Roald. Sco- Road Scholar. Yeah, Kyle R- Blue Roald Dahl. Isn't it, is it Roald or Roald? Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl. No, it's Road Dahl. I thought it's Roald Dahl. Road, That's hit, how hit, I've been saying it my whole life. Hit the road, Dahl. Wow. <laughs> this guy. So, and, and you also say Cillian Murphy. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's Killian. Yeah. I, like, I like correcting people. On yeah, that. well, everybody. Okay, well, what did he write? <laughs> uh, he wrote The Big Friggin' Giant. Uh, the Big Friendly Giant. Oh, okay. 
Um, Lynn Reed Banks uh, wrote The Guardian in the Cupboard, formerly known as uh, The Indian in the Cupboard. Oh. What's up to Cleveland? Cleveland changed their the Indians to the Guardians. Okay. Oh, I get the. Here oh, we a, go. Ooh, wow. It was so far over my head. <laughs> and I, the dry I, setup really got me too. I didn't even know. I didn't see the joke coming. Kind of <laughs> Very dry. And L. Ron Hubbard wrote Battlefield Earth. That, so that year? Big. Yeah. Wow. But the biggest thing that happened this year, E.T. dominating the box office. Uh, by July 23rd, 1982, it had already amassed $150 million. Ooh. In 1982 money. Yeah, which is just absolutely insane. I, I think that's like a $3 trillion now. <laughs> Probably. They could, yeah. could have bought California for that amount of money. All right. To start at the way beginning, there was a show called The Twilight Zone. Never heard of it. Debuted um, in 1959, and it ran until 1964 on CBS. Very much part of that golden age of television. Yeah. Yeah, and Rod Serling was the creator, the heart of that. Picture, if you will. He didn't live too long after it was canceled. Um, He was a hard smoker his whole life, and um, during open heart surgery, he died in 1975. Ouch. (laughs) <laughs> you would hate when that happens. Yeah. He had actually <laughs> wanted to do an anthology horror film for years. And, um, you know, that never materialized. So his agent was actually a guy named Ted Ashley. And he later became chairman of the board at Warner Brothers. Mm. And so after he died, he worked with um, Rod's widow, Carol Serling. And they got the ball rolling on Twilight Zone, the movie. So it got the green light. And by 1982, Rod Serling's old agent, Ted Ashley, stepped down from Warner Brothers and some new blood came in and they knew how to woo filmmaking talents to the studio. And one such filmmaking talent that they worked hard to get on board was Steven Spielberg. Ooh. You heard of him? Yeah. yeah. E.T. guy. Speaking of (laughs) E.T. So he actually directed the pilot for one of Rod Serling's last shows called Night Gallery. So Spielberg directed a segment that starred uh, Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a, that would make me really want to watch this episode if Joan Rivers is screaming at how the aliens are dressed. What are you wearing? <laughs> <laughs> what is that alien wearing? <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say Joan Chen. Oh, Joan no, Chen. no, okay. actually Joan Crawford. <laughs> Joan Crawford. Oh, Joan Crawford. You know, mommy, mommy, mommy dearest. dearest wire yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so yeah, after he did Night Gallery, obviously Spielberg changed the industry with Jaws. Ooh. In 1975. That was then, a hot movie. And then, of course, Close Encounters. So he, he was right on a roll there. Uh, another upcoming filmmaker at this time is a man named John Landis. Mm. He's a Chicago-born guy, high school dropout. He, his first movie in 1973 is called Schlock. And it got the attention of none other than Johnny Carson. Weird and yeah. wild schlock. Well, yeah. I got a weird guy here. And, he directs the movies. <laughs> and Landis made an appearance on The Tonight Show. So, wow. At wow. this time. And then that led to Kentucky Fried Movie. Brilliant title, by the way. Yes. 
I wonder if the KFC people had any beef with that movie. I think so. You'd have to. Yeah, it's just it's a clear ripoff it, of their their. Yeah, game. it's a parody. Yeah. And so then um, he followed that with a little movie called Animal House. Hey, can we dance with your dates? <laughs> <laughs> Grossed a ton of money. Highest grossing comedy of all time until Ghostbusters. Wow. In the 80s. And it didn't – like the budget was really low. So the gross was high. People were still going to movies then. And made a lot of money. Oh, my God. But, yeah. So. Writer Doug Kenny based it on his Harvard experience at, uh, in the Harvard uh, Lampoon. So which, Damn. Which created the National Lampoon and, you know, yeah. so on and so forth. And he didn't have too, such a good ending, did Well, he? he actually died off a cliff in Hawaii, which, you know, <laughs> it's not a good way to go. And he was only, like, 33, hanging out with Chevy Chase. All of a sudden, next thing you know, he dies falling off a cliff with Chevy Chase Chevy didn't push him, correct? Well, not that we know, but my assumption is hanging out with Chevy Chase is just that bad that you just it's better to jump off a cliff in Hawaii. <laughs> this guy's such a prick, I gotta get out of here. Yeah. yeah. Wow. This guy's gonna be an <laughs> asshole and leave bad voicemails for showrunners one day. I'm just gonna take a leap. Then he followed uh, Landis followed Animal House with the Blues Brothers. Yeah. With Belushi and Aykroyd. Reprising their act from SNL. Another, no, I don't know if I'd say great movie, but it's it's a movie that exists in. <laughs> it's iconic. It's I something. Guess. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of great R and B. It's uh, a movie accent. that exists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> something happened there. I don't know what. It's a lot it's of fine. cars falling out of the air onto the ground. Yeah, and yeah. All the um, you know, oversized special effects and the on camera mayhem that came from that kind of cinema verite spirit out of the 1970s. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. And which directors would just fly by the seat of their pants and just kind of just kind of run and gun and just like not care for like the safety of people on, on set and stuff. <laughs> not at all, <laughs> because they were making great art. Yeah, cinema verite is like a, just a nice way of saying complete fucking psychopath. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sociopath with, with the cameras who let people die on set, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And now if you apply that to the Blues Brothers, you got Jake and Elwood Blues, you know, the two characters at the center of it. They, they like, destroy an entire shopping mall during yeah. a car chase. And John Belushi's on speedballs and stuff. Oh, my so. God. And get this. This this blows my mind. Um, there's a scene where they blow up a gas station, Yeah, and it stayed on the cutting room floor. <laughs> That's insane. wasn't even in the movie. I mean, can you imagine blowing up an entire gas station? If I blow up a gas station, that's being in the final cut. I don't care if it makes sense to the story. Absolutely. That's my whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to start at the gas station, blow it up. We're going to work our way out story-wise. At least release it as a DVD extra or something. Oh, for sure. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, the Animal House had basically propelled Landis into Spielberg's league. And they both uh, admired each other. Uh, and so Landis actually first met Spielberg um, when they had a meeting about him punching up the Jaws screenplay to add a little more levity to it, a little mm. more comedy. So after Animal House, Spielberg called up Landis and they went out to dinner together. 
and Landis was very excited to start this new friendship. Now we're getting to uh, the early 80s. And in 1981, both directors released signature movies. Raiders of the Lost Ark. You heard of it? Once or twice. And then um, Landis made American Werewolf in London. So Spielberg, had he had collaborations throughout his career that proved very fruitful, right? Like with George Lucas. Could Landis maybe be one of those? Possibly. Well, I think Goonies, uh, I think he just gave the story idea to Christopher Columbus, who just ran wild with it. And right. he just kind of gave stories to people to kind of like, all right, you do this, this is my idea, and I'll be part of it, basically. Exactly. And so they both are excited about the Twilight Zone idea and that this could, this is the, what they can collaborate on. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Warner Brothers agreed to back the movie as an independent production, which would be cheaper. So the studio relinquished all control. Uh, so there, it's like a shoestring budget on something that kind of sounds like a big idea, like yeah, movie was exactly. And they could, and Spielberg and Landis could both operate out of their offices at Universal. Okay, basically they had to stay on budget, which was around seven million dollars for the movie. It ballooned, of course, to ten million dollars, and then it had to have a PG rating. And as long as they did that, total control plus final cut and gross points. Hmm. So anyway, this movie, um, at one point, it was going to be just one original story. Mm-hmm. One of the contenders for that was actually an unproduced screenplay that was floating around called Miracle Mile. It was later made into a movie, finally, in 1989. Terrifying movie. Is it? Absolutely terrifying. Have you watched it? Yeah. It's, one, it's on my list. <sighs> yeah, the whole thing, he starts, uh, this guy gets stood up for a date. And then he wants to go call the the girl to like tell her off, but the uh, phone's ringing outside, and so he picks up the phone, and then you just hear this guy freaking out, being like, "They're doing it! They just sent the nukes!" And then you hear a couple gunshots, and the guy slumped to the floor, and then someone slowly pick up the phone and goes, "Forget what you just heard. Go to bed." And then just hangs up. And uh, yeah, the whole rest of the movie is him like trying to convince people like we need to get the fuck out of here. But nobody knows if he's telling the truth or not. So it's like, is he a psycho? You would if that happened to you, you would look like a complete lunatic. It sounds like they should have went with that yeah. premise but <laughs> for the, this movie. The final scene is the scare, probably the scariest scene I've ever seen in a movie. Only oh, because uh, don't it's give so, it away. I'm not going to give anything away. Okay, but it's just so mentally like just like actually terrifying. Mentally jarring. Yes. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> like this awesome sounding movie, they're like. <laughs> in the trash now it's finally decided it's going to be back to the anthology movie and it's going to be four segments two directed by spielberg and landis themselves um the other two directors that were chosen to do the other segments were joe dante who at that point had done a movie called piranha which was a jaws ripoff that (laughs) spielberg actually really liked <laughs> so, that's crazy. What movies does Spielberg really like? He must. Yeah. Must what like does he sit down when he fires up Hulu? Like, what does he click on? Yeah. 
Uh, we'll have to look into that. Uh, and then, <laughs> How are we going to look into this? <laughs> and then the, Through his windows at his house. Yeah. <laughs> the last director chosen was George Miller, who had previously done Mad Max. Uh-huh. And he would go on to do Mad Max, the newer version. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, That's a twist so I didn't see coming. Hey. The guy that did Mad so Max. So he's had a very diverse career of doing the same movie called over Mad and Max. Over. <laughs> <laughs> and um, three of the segments will be based on classic Twilight Zone episodes. Spielberg was going to do um, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, um, where aliens cause chaos in a suburban neighborhood. And then um, Joe Dante signed up for It's a Good Life. About an evil kid with godlike powers. Yeah. And then um, George Miller would do Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, remake of the classic William Shatner episode about a scary creature on the wing of a plane that's eating the plane wires. There's a monster on the wing. Yeah. Landis would write and direct the only original segment of the movie called Time Out. Hey. And we, you want to go straight yeah, to the let's, clip? let's get to it. All right. This will set the scene for Landis, Landis' about segment. An angry man, Mr. William Connor, who carries on his shoulder a chip the size of the national debt. Boy, this is a heavy. sour man, a lonely man, who's tired of waiting for the breaks that come to others, but never to him. Mr. William Connor, whose own blind hatred is about to catapult him into the this darkest Sounds like my story so far. <laughs> the Twilight Zone. Pam, pam, pam. Okay, so, so obviously Rod Serling was not alive to do that narration. Yeah. Guess who that was? Some chump. Was that uh, John Linus? No, for real. Guess who that was? I don't know. Go get him, Rocky! Burgess Meredith. Oh! Yeah. Wow, Burgess Meredith. Yeah. Wow. Interesting, right? Yeah. He he sounds less gravelly a little bit, but not <laughs> that guy be, sounded pretty gravelly. Yeah, well, well, when I <laughs> he's I, an angry bitter man. I need a certain level of gravelly when I to call it gravelly, if you know what I mean. Head of rock. So yes, this segment is called Time Out, um, and it's about a guy. Was <laughs> what what Burgess just said? <laughs> and he this guy Bill. You're Connor, on a first name basis with him. Yeah, yeah. just Burgess. Now. He, he launches a racist rant in a bar after work, you know, with his buddies. Yeah. And he, he's mad because he was passed over for promotion that day. And guess what? It was to a Jewish man. Oof. Um, I can he, understand. No comment. Yeah. And <laughs> he leaves. After causing a scene, he storms out of the bar angrily. And the moment he steps outside, suddenly he's in Nazi-occupied France. Yeah. And there's SS guards, and they see him as a Jewish guy. Oof. So uh, they shoot at him. They chase him. Tables have turned, Yeah, buddy. Th then he's, hey, when that happens. Yeah, when you wake up in Nazi-occupied France. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing grinds my gears yeah. like when, that, when something like that happens. And then um, he's propelled to the 1950s rural south, and he's at a Klan rally. Hey. Except they, the Klansmen view him as a black man, so they would like to burn him. Oh, well, that's not good. And then now, He's in quite the pickle. Oh boy, what to do here? <laughs> then he's thrown into Vietnam during you know that war that happened. Which yeah, one was that? and um, yeah. now he's he's a Vietnamese guy, and American GIs see him and start shooting him because he's the enemy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's the, Charlie, as they called him. Whoa, hey, well, no, is that? And 
Is that off the... Like, no, I, that's what they said. I thought that's what they called it back in the day. I'm not trying to... Hey, I'm not trying to say nothing, okay? Hey, 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 hey. Don't hey, kill hey. me over hey, here. Hey, Mr. 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 Oh, my God. <laughs> where, oh, hey. Where was I? We were, he was saying something about Chuck or something? <laughs> Chuck. So, so Bill Chuck. Connor finally gets thrown back into Nazi-occupied France, and he's thrown into, like, a railroad freight prison car thing with other Jewish prisoners. And then he looks outside, and he sees his present-time buddies from the bar walking out of the bar, I guess, in the present day, even though he's in Nazi-occupied France. Yeah, they kind of lost us there at the end. And so he starts (laughs) yelling out to his buddies, like, hey, remember me? Yeah. And then they don't hear him at all. Right. And, you know, so it's a bleak ending, and it's a very Twilight Zone type ending. Yeah. He but gets it, his comeuppance. But yeah, is that the ending of. that they were going for in the movie? No. What I just described, that's yeah. how it is in the movie. Yeah. But they did have other plans. So um, at Warner Brothers, a couple of VPs, Lucy Fisher and Terry Semmel, they thought the segment needed to have some humanity added, that he was too mean. It was too much. They needed some redemption at the end. Uh, do we want to w- hear why she thought it was too much? Really? Yeah, let's get it. That I'm better than a Jew. I'm better than some African spear chucker. I'm better than some gook because I'm an American. I'm an American. Does that mean anything anymore? Hold it down, huh? How you hold it down? How about please hold it down? How about please hold this? All right, Yikes. so the, yeah, that that's oh, this Bill Connor, right? That's before he goes on his little adventure yeah. and um, <laughs> so his wacky journey through time. So, nice way of so they view these these you know VPs at Warner Brothers viewed him as too mean. Yeah. So they decided, yeah, just please make him have some kind of humanity at the end. So John Landis then wrote a scene, an extra scene, where it would be Bill Connor fleeing war torn Vietnam and saving two Vietnamese kids from a burning village. It's going to end with him really, like, saving the day. Yeah. So he was a, a guy that was in the Vietnam War. So this is perfect for him. So he's kind of the character, coming, coming full circle back to Vietnam. And he's a good guy instead of, like, a bad American kid. Yeah, and it, happy ending is the gist of this. Sure. Yeah. They, Warner Brothers wanted a happy ending. That was the goal. Yeah. Which is not Twilight Zone. No. That's one of the saddest parts of this story is that this big extra scene that was added was totally unnecessary. So avoidable because it goes against the concept of the actual movie and the franchise that they're going off of. And it's Warner Brothers' fault. (laughs) Yeah. I mean. Fuck you, Warner Brothers. Number of faults to go around. All of you brothers, (laughs) Warner Brothers. So that being said, no director writer wants to hear this, but Landis actually didn't mind because it, it gave him a chance to do add more. another scene. Yeah, yeah. do more. And justify, the, justify a bigger budget. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. With the extra scene and everything else, like obviously the budget, it didn't allow for a lot of big name stars. So Landis had originally considered Peter Coyote, who was currently being seen in E.T. at that time as the... He was good in E.T. What, uh, like the government? He was like the, uh, the NASA or... Got, you know, Military type guy, yeah, or whatever that yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, and then and then Glenn Campbell was another choice, which would have been strange. Is he a country western? Singer? Yeah, yeah. Would have been strange to hear Glenn Campbell give a racist tirade. Yeah, and then John Denver was next up. <laughs> yeah, William yeah. Orbison. Um, um, Landis ended up obviously casting uh, veteran actor Vic Morrow. 
Mm. Bronx born, another high school dropout, joined the Navy. Um, he made his film debut as a thug in Blackboard Jungle in 1955. And, and that was a big movie. It, it introduced the song Rock Around the Clock. And he's a star of this movie? Um, no, he just plays a thug. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, but, but he made an impression. He actually beat out Steve McQueen. Ah, oh wow! To get that, that role, that's a big beat. Take that, yeah. McQueen. And then, um, but he's he, but Morrow is actually best known as um, Sergeant Chip Saunders in a TV series called Combat, hmm. World War II drama that ran from like 1962 to 1967 with over 150 episodes. Shit. So it was a big hit, and he was syndicated, you know, a big star at that time. Yeah, and he um, he actually wrote and directed a spaghetti western in 1970 called A Man Called Sledge. And was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, it failed at the box office. So, yeah, as the 70s uh, continued, his fame dried up. His biggest part was a supporting role in the movie The Bad News Bears. Great where movie. he plays the, the villain coach. Yes. Punching a kid in the face. But that still didn't really lead to that much. And so now now he's just stuck in minor TV roles by the time Twilight Zone production is rolling around. But you know who is up and coming while his career is diving is um, his daughter. Jennifer Jason Leigh. Well, yes. <laughs> he had two daughters with um, his first wife, screenwriter Barbara Turner, Carrie Ann Morrow, and Jennifer Lee Morrow, who I was going to reveal was Jennifer Lee. Well, Jason I'm so Lee. sorry. I just, uh, I, it was, I was chomping at the bit there. Yeah, I, so I was... she, she changed her name. She didn't want anything to do with Morrow. Um, they were estranged. In 2018, Jennifer Jason Lee told The Guardian, quote, We were not close. It's hard. I don't really talk about my father publicly because there are a lot of people that really love him very, very much. His work as an actor. I don't want to disabuse them of their admiration. Hmm. So basically, he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> she might I hope well you like this that. asshole because I don't like him. <laughs> no, who knows? But yeah, so they didn't get along. But anyway, Landis felt that Morrow's built-in tough guy image, you know, from things like combat would lend itself well to the role as Bill Connor in The Twilight Zone. Yeah. And when he got that phone call to be in the movie, he was ecstatic. Mm-hmm. Now the production is starting on the timeout segment, okay? Okay. Late June 1982. Are we there? We are I'm, now. I'm with you right now. <laughs> Unit production coordinator Dan Allingham and stunt coordinator Gary McClurdy met with Vic at his home in Encino to go over stunt work. So the role required this guy who was 53 years old at the time to stand at unsafe heights and even evade gunfire in the Vietnam scene. Yeah. Um, we have a clip about that. Okay. Ooh, clip time. Let's hit it. One of the scenes is Vic Morrow's running through the jungle, coming through the greenery of Vietnam, which I filled in. And he is being shot at. To get the realistic feel of them being shot at before the bullets go off, he is pulled off out of scene and the bullets shoot and they rip the shit out of the greenery, the palm fronds and the whole thing. Well, they use real bullets that night. That was something that John insisted on doing. Wow. 
he seems like so calm. He's like, and they blew the shit out of everything. <laughs> wow. What he's describing is so insane. That's he's how so he calm. survives. Yeah. Yeah. So here Everybody we go. It, fucking dud. <laughs> it's cinema verite on the fly with production nearing an end. It was all leading up to this new sequence that was added. And two Vietnamese kids were needed. California Labor Commission, um, their rules were kids, generally they work four hours, no later than 6.30 p.m. And a special permit would be needed for them to work until after 8 p.m. Plus, you know, this sequence would involve a lot of uh, special effects. Yeah. And let's play that clip actually laying that out. Ba -ba 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 -ba. <laughs> it's getting choked up now. This is Richard Sawyer, by the way, the Seems set designer. lay it out for you was Vic is coming into the village, a helicopter comes in, he picks up the children, comes up to the water's edge, and then runs towards camera, saving the children. Oof. Yeah. Never uh, want to see a grown man cry. No. That is brutal. <clears throat> Associate producer George Folsey Jr. agreed to... He's Landis's guy, by the way. So he agreed to find the two kids. It, it was um, a nighttime shoot was required for this big final sequence. And um, the kids were hired under... Would be hired under the table to circumvent the California labor laws. Mistake number one. Yeah. And so Folsey, he found the kids through a doctor friend, Harold Schumann. And he was the husband of production secretary Donna Schumann, who was working on the movie. And so Harold phoned an old associate, Peter Chen, but his kids were too old. But he said his brother Mark had a daughter about the right age named Renee. Um, she was six. And then after that, Peter phoned his, his associate, Daniel Lee, and he got his son, Mika, who was seven, cast as the other child. That's and such an insane like way to go about casting. Just like a guy with a cigarette that's like, ah, I'll fucking find you some kids. I know. Yeah, it's, I got a doctor. He knows kids. He's got like others uh, headshots at this doctor. Like, how are they just where, going where they, through the kids? They have to break the law in order to get the kids to work on the movie. Yeah, like that. That's insane. Yeah. And There's various HIPAA laws that are broken here, I feel like. <laughs> yes. Nothing I hate more than a HIPAA breach. <laughs> so, yeah, M Mika, the seven-year-old boy, he was outgoing and loved posing for pictures, so the parents thought he'd have fun being in a big Hollywood movie. And so Folsey received $2,000 in a petty cash account to pay the kids. It would be $500 for a night's work to each kid. And if people don't know... <laughs> how egregious that is like the petty cash is used um literally for like if a actor needs a red bull or like a light goes out you need to run to the store real quick it's like for that day like small things that are needed and they're doing this so that it's off the books and that people don't know that the kids are actually there so it's so bad yeah, yeah like producers will, will buy cocaine for like rock stars yeah. and stuff back, <laughs> back in the day and stuff so it's really stuff you don't really just want you know the government to know about yeah it's not good this situation <laughs> it is bad though <laughs> um so the, the casting agent we kind of made this an episode because it's not good <laughs> um the, the casting Fair agents point. all say they were unaware of this hiring yeah okay um Folsey told the children's parents you know if you see a fire safety officer on the set duck run yeah run oh get out get don't, I don't know be nothing. seen um later the parents would claim they were told nothing about the special effects explosives or the Oof. helicopter 
the crew is everyone set. was in the bathroom when this yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> conveniently um, yeah <laughs> i was in the bathroom yeah wait so. what happened <laughs> yeah, that's like in in boston when someone gets shot like the cops come and say hey what happened i was in the bathroom yeah <laughs> the crew assembled at a place called the indian dunes ranch and that's where the final scene would be shot Popular filming location, Los Angeles area by Santa Clarita. It's like right near the Six Flags. Yes. But so this area is like open hills, woods, desert. You know, it can look like the Middle East or wherever, you know, or Vietnam or Vietnam. Exactly. (laughs) And everything is okay. They're just shooting later at night. But nothing bad is going to happen here, right, Alejandro? Uh, well, we, we kind of gave it away already that something bad <laughs> happens. <laughs> but if that was the podcast, we just tell like Quentin Tarantino, we tell the good story. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah. This is uh, this is Tarantino's version of the Twilight Zone <laughs> yeah. tragedy. Yeah. They shot the scene and it was great. <laughs> Brad, Brad Pitt dropped acid uh, and he yeah. killed all the bad people and it was great. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody then went to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. Um, so or six flags, right? Because that would have been closer. A second, Kyle's been to every theme park in this country. Yeah, every wow, day. You're, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we'll delve into that. Not... <laughs> <laughs> so the second, the second AD, a guy named Andy House, he was vociferous about it was bad hiring the kids, yeah. but he was afraid to speak to Landis directly. And a lot of people were like, they say they weren't aware the kids were going to be near all these effects. And cheated. So the first night of shooting with the kids was July 21st, 1982. And it's a simple scene of the children encountering a disoriented Bill Connor in their Vietnam village. Okay. Um, But things kept getting delayed. The kids were getting antsy. John Landis was dissatisfied with their makeup, so he smeared more mud on their face. Imagine the scene. Yeah, the scene of just this sociopath John Landis just throwing (laughs) mud at these poor kids' faces. What a monster. And and it's very late, by the way, at this point. And then he starts making funny faces to make them laugh. Then they start laughing uncontrollably. So the scene finally gets wrapped around 3.30 a.m. And then Folesley informed the parents, yeah, we're going to need you for another night. Um, So he dangled another $500 (laughs) petty check in front of them for another night's work. Mm. The parents were exhausted. And so the next night, the parents just switched off. Each child, the other parent, joined them. Um, It was Mika's dad, Daniel, and Renee's mom. How would you pronounce this? Sean Wei? Sean Wei? Yeah, that sounds about right. And so, um, yeah, filming began on the night of July 22nd, 1982, and went into the wee hours of the morning. Um, And during a test explosion earlier in the evening, the crew on the helicopter were, they were jolted by the turbulence and told... Landis. It's a little was a too lot. rocky here, John. Just a heads up. So, so then he replied to the crew, "You think that was big? You ain't seen nothing yet." Wow. Oh, and John Lorikat, the actor, you know from Night Court, plays one of the clansmen. Yep. And so he said that he had heard about this spectacular final sequence and was going to come watch it, but then his car was stolen, <laughs> so he couldn't find a ride to the Indian That's Dunes. That's weird. That happened. Well, I. He was a well-known alcoholic, so maybe he sold it for a bottle of whiskey. Well-known? 
Well known, yeah. He was an alcoholic. You're right? not just he. He, he, he well known that. for being an alcoholic, or just a well known guy that also happens to be an alcoholic. He was a he was the best alcoholic in uh, the city of Los Angeles, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was well known. Wow, for that's it. high praise. Yeah. Top booze bag. Five years in a row. Five years running, kid. <laughs> running. Uh, so at this point, <laughs> he was running because he never got. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't until after two a.m. when it finally came time to film the final shot. And in the screenplay, here's how it is written: the helicopter makes another. Another pass, and then one of the huts explodes in a spectacular fireball. Bill, holding a child in each arm, makes a Herculean effort and runs for the shallow river. With the huts burning behind them, Bill runs as best he can across the river. And so, at this point, Vic Morrow is pacing around. He's nervous. Uh, let's play that the clip. And by the way, the man talking in this clip wrote this excellent book, Outrageous Conduct, which I have gotten a ton of information from. Booyah. Vic Morrow felt it was physically demanding and a little bit overwhelming. But he felt that he couldn't afford to be too vociferous in challenging this powerful uh, a film director. So he did it against his better judgment. I didn't think I was going to uh, hear the word vociferous twice today. You know, that might be where it got planted in my head. Yeah. <laughs> you said Pacific Rim. did. I was oh, like, wow. whoa, hey, look at the fucking dictionary on I this was, guy. I was going to say voiced his concern or something yeah. along those lines. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm a hack. <laughs> so at, according to legend on the set of a movie called Dirty Mary Crazy Larry in the 1970s. <laughs> My favorite movie. Vic Morrow Everybody's insisted. Favorite movie. He insisted on a $1 million life insurance policy to do a helicopter stunt. When asked why, Vic replied, I have always had a premonition that I'll be killed in a helicopter crash. <sighs> So now the final shot is ready to go, right? You got six cameras shooting, and Landis wanted the helicopter, the actors, and the village in the same shot. Inside the helicopter, you have a pilot named Dorsey Wingo. Isn't that a great name for that's a pilot? A, that's the best name of a pilot I've ever heard in my life. But it's gonna and be I've like heard them all. Dorsey <laughs> Propellero. Yeah. Oh, no. There's Dorsey, no wings on this thing. Dorsey Wingo. The so, Wingo killed your baby. Doing this. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, come on. It's so on the nose. So, uh, <laughs> it's just too... I don't know. Also on the helicopter, Dan Allingham. Remember, it was him who had gone over stunts with Vic originally in his Encino home. Yes. And then um, two cameramen were also on board. So the helicopter's just hovering above the village waiting for the scene to be shot. And then watching from the North Shore was executive producer Frank Marshall, who was Spielberg's closest delegate on the set that night. He wasn't watching from the shore. He was in the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> We're all so. in the bathroom. That's right, boss. <laughs> yeah. And then um, FX coordinator Paul Stewart was overseeing all the explosions. So one of the people he was overseeing is a FX tech named James Camomile. Not Camomile, but Camomile. Mm. Hmm. No, uh, no relation to the team. Um, I heard, I, I was watching some news footage and they said Camomile instead of Camomile. Anyway. 
So this FX tech detonated um, the first of three bombs in the back of the village. And another tech was setting off simultaneous explosions on the other side. And and at this point, it's getting kind of, it's out of control. So there's camera operators on top of the cliff that had to run to escape a very hot cloud of smoke and ash. Mm. Paul Stewart, the you know, the FX coordinator, he would later claim that the detonations came faster than he had instructed. Wait, so someone fucked up there? Uh, chamomile. Oh, really? He He's he's the, the one that, guy. yeah, he was going too fast, apparently, with okay. the explosions. But wasn't he being told to? Well, that's, Paul Stewart claims he told him something else. So uh, Landis has, just creates this kind of wild. Yeah, there's a lot of like, confusion yeah, Chaotic kind of world in which no one knows, you know, who's doing what now. And and so at this point, John Landis, in his bullhorn, says, lower, 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 fire, fire, fire. Say that one more time. Lower, lower, lower. Fire, fire, fire. That seems important. Torah, Torah, Torah. Uh, um, so grass huts explode in the background. There's a savage wind. And then Vic stumbled in the water. And Landis has said that this was planned. Like that was acting to have Vic stumble. Hmm. And so um, Renee Chen, the little girl, she gets dropped in the water at this point. And immediately after, Chamomile um, set off two explosions that created a large fireball that blasts the helicopter violently. Pilot Dorsey Wingo lost control of the helicopter, and Renee was crushed by the right skid. So just to clarify, he lost control uh uh, Wingo did. Yes. Um, after being blasted by because the the, 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 the fireball. The the blast fireballs made it untenable to fly the helicopter anymore. It just he just It couldn't. broke off the back, right? Yeah, exactly. And Chamomile was was focused on the actors, he said, and he was not looking up to see that there was a helicopter above him when he detonated those final explosions jeez but so, from that map they were showing on that clip the, the the helicopter was not supposed to go over the head of the actors right yeah they're supposed to be up to the side yeah so like what why did that even ha- why did that even it happen? was just, it was it was total just loss of control put together yeah everyone was a little confused and it, it's not like it dropped straight down either like we'll show the footage so you see that it it turns to its side so it would like, if it wasn't over their head, it would eventually be over their head. Oh, or right. if it fell the other way, it would just have fallen further away from them. But So, fuck. so yeah, uh, Renee is crushed, and then Vic and uh, Mika are decapitated by the main rotor, and <laughs> all three died instantly. I would um, hope so. We can get to the footage. Yeah. So these explosions are insane. Yeah. It's, it's just way too much. You can just tell. It just even looking at it now it looks like way too big. The, the movie a, Backdraft didn't have that much fire in it. For real. Like, I'm surprised they didn't get set on fire. The wind is so crazy and those fireballs are so big. Like, even like your hair would all be singed from all this insanity. Yeah. That ho- that water must have been just like weirdly hot too from all like the fire going on. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, it never, uh, it never ceases to be shocking to see yeah. that when the helicopter comes a, down. A it's live so fast. Helicopter too. I just can't believe. So it. chaos ensues on the set. You know, people are like, "Where are the actors?" 
blood is filling the water. Um, the AD Andy House uh, lifted Vic's torso out of the water oh in horror. God. Like, God. like what is this? It turns out to be Vic Morrow's torso. Like, Oof. horrifying. Um, human parts are floating in the river. And Renee's mother is wailing by her body. Wingo, oh my God. Wingo the pilot, was in a daze. And as he was being let off, he asked someone, Where's Vic? And they're like, yeah, uh, we got some bad news. And a voice calls over the loudspeaker that's a rap urging everybody to go home. And um, th- that all was, you know, after 2 a.m., the scene had started ar- shooting around like 2.20. By the time police arrived on the scene at 2.45, executive producer Frank Marshall vanished. <laughs> he was nowhere to be seen. Jeez. Yeah. He's speeding down the 405 at that point. He's set to be anywhere else but there. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's like a cartoon. Like, <laughs> yeah. I gotta be anywhere else. And a, you see a cloud of smoke. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the script supervisor, uh, a woman named Catherine Wooten, has, recalls having like a horrible 50-minute drive home to Marina Del Rey. That's a good like 35 to 40-mile drive. Yeah. And, Thinking and, about what just happened. And in retrospect, she said maybe they all should have just stayed to console each other mm. a little longer. So Landis placed a pre-dawn uh, phone call to his entertainment lawyer who went right to work making sure all the files related to the movie were secured at his office at Universal. And then the entertainment guy also contacted a criminal defense attorney named Harlan Braun. He was highly recommended. And so they, they began gathering evidence for a defense well before the criminal and like immediately civil they're looking for a, a proper defense. Absolutely. Jeez. And then another call Landis placed was to Steven Spielberg to tell him what had happened. And Landis later told friends that um, the first thing Steven asked was, do you have a press agent? Hmm. Not like how are the parents doing and how how's well, Vic Morrow's wife maybe doing? Maybe he and... asked that afterwards. Yeah. How's Jennifer Jason Lee? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it should be noted that Fast Times at Ridgemont High would come out later that summer in 1982. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Vic did not live to see that. Damn. Yeah. And he loved Judge Reinhold, too. So that would have been. <laughs> you know that for a fact? <laughs> I can. We'll stick a pin in that. I'll we'll okay. do. We'll do it in post. But yeah, I think I think I have that. Landis uh, attended all three funerals. Oh, that's and nice. And he gave a eulogy at Vic Morrow's funeral. And he claims that he was asked to give the eulogy. By the way, <laughs> he just gets out. He steals the mic out of someone's hand. Yeah, hand-to-hand. I mean, there's I no, got something to say. There's no, proof. I was asked to do this. <laughs> He yeah. just skulks off. That's go, 15 yeah. seconds. It's a oh little hard God. to hear, but yeah. tragedy strikes in an instant, he says. And, you know, it's comforting to know that Vic's work will live forever. Acting like he made a, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's a good performance, though. Vic is very good in oh, the yeah. segment. But. It, 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 yes, but it's not worth anyone dying or even of just... Of course not. ...being a little bit uncomfortable for. <laughs> no, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's not worth any discomfort yeah. to make that movie. So the next morning, news spreads around Warner Brothers, right? And they try to detach themselves from this disaster as best they could. Key evidence was mysteriously lost. Whoa. Including um, still photographs from the set and call sheets. 
Ah, yeah. that's interesting. So we wouldn't know if uh, a certain Spielberg was on set. Right. <laughs> Apparently he wasn't. Based off of who? Who's saying this? But Sp- Sp- I, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was not there, so I can't say. Quote by Steven Spielberg. I wasn't there. He was in the bathroom. Yeah. So, <laughs> so another um, producer that Steven worked with a lot and still does, her name is Kathleen Kennedy. She mm. had produced E.T. and She ruined Star Wars. And, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> she and this Frank Marshall guy who vanished, you know, that morning of the accident. Yeah. They were un- intent on keeping Spielberg away from all the bad press. Yeah. The one instance where Spielberg was thrown into the mess, um, a teamster who drove a special effects truck told the National Transportation Safety Board he had seen Spielberg on set that fateful night. Ooh. And that Spielberg had asked for a car right after the incident occurred. Wow. (laughs) But the Teamster later admitted that he might have confused Spielberg with Frank Marshall. Mm. So he kind of backtracked. We could put on the the two side by side, especially at that time. It's absurd to even think they're remotely the same person. It's possible he was there, but I could see him not being there. He, he was a busy guy. So another strange thing is the NTSB abruptly ended the investigation in, into this accident in November of 82 hmm. without even doing a recreation of the accident. It was a cover up. The book was closed very fast. But they br- they brushed it under the carpet a little bit. Yeah. Well, not- when you're dealing with, you know, a major heavyweight in the industry, no one wants to say anything. No. And so now it's like, do they continue with the project? Do they cancel it? Warner Brothers thought it would look bad if they didn't continue, like they were somehow guilty. <laughs> that could lead to maybe high legal costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're like, all right, let's continue this. The show must go on. Yeah. So in September 82, the production resumed with Joe Dante's segment, It's a Good Life. And then in November, Miller filmed The Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Spielberg wanted to get out of the project because E.T.'s the biggest thing right now. And he's planning the Indiana Jones sequel, Temple of Doom. He's got other movies where three people didn't die. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a wet sock. You know, yeah. That he has he to just put wants, on. He, but he has to, he has to <laughs> just see it through. So um, he nixed the idea of doing the monsters I do on Maple Street mm-hmm. and just picked a real simple, like saccharine fantasy Very called low ambition. Yeah, yeah. Called kick the can. It was yeah. still based on one of the original episodes about old people playing kick the can and becoming young again i watched it and i i hated it yeah i hated it as well it's really it's almost like the worst parts of hook just really (laughs) overly sentimental and didn't like hook either so you know i think it all is the worst part of hook oh wow there we go the entire movie is the worst part of Hook. kyle you haven't he was in the opinion on that i was in the bathroom (laughs) okay What'd you say about Hook? Um, <laughs> what the fuck you say about Hook? So they, they, he's, Spielberg starts <laughs> shooting this thing the day after Thanksgiving. So the crew is not real thrilled either, right? And now he's about to go to England to present E.T. in front of the Queen. What a weird thing to do. Yeah. So, so the <laughs> May pro- I present this alien movie to you? <laughs> so I would the like produ- to see. <laughs> so the production <laughs> was rushed. It's perfunctory. He's like, all right, let's do this shot. Like one or two takes. Yeah. We're done. Just no, just one take. Zero takes sometimes. <laughs> yeah, zero. And it was shot. With the audition. <laughs> it was shot day for night. Very strict yeah. accordance with child labor laws. You know? One would yeah. hope. Yeah. Yeah. Another guy that wanted to move on very fast from this was John Landis. In a matter of <laughs> weeks. 
weeks. Surprise, surprise. He's a, actually attached to direct a comedy called Black and White for Paramount. It's a Prince and the Pauper like tale set on Wall Street. Does it sound familiar? Mm. And it, it would star Eddie Murphy, who was up and coming. Hey. And old pal Dan Aykroyd. So production begins on this movie in December 82. So just months after this horrific Twilight Zone accident. Yeah. And it's uh, almost like he wanted to trade places. Uh, I like the foreshadowing. <laughs> All right, cat's out of the bag. (laughs) The title was changed from black and white to Trading Places. Hey, get out of here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Ah. Wow. And the crew. I'm having a stroke. (laughs) The crew got a Christmas gift because at that same time, 48 Hours Opens is a box office smash Mm -hmm. and it cements Eddie Murphy's superstardom. Okay. You know, the aura on the set of Trading Places, it was like sober. The crew, you know, they were supportive. Yeah. Aykroyd told the press at the time, Landis is up and happy. And regarding the Twilight Zone, he said, that was an industrial accident, nothing more. Well, Dan Aykroyd believes aliens are here and he's met three of them. Like, he thinks he's a crazy person. He believes in the occult. And- yeah. Yeah. And then Landis's wife, Deborah, stood by his side as well and said, less of a man would have been crushed like a dog after that accident. I think she means like a dog. He, you know, he bounced back okay. Yeah, because he's strong-willed. It's a dumb way to put it. Crushed <laughs> <laughs> like a dog. You've been crushed like a dog. Did I say dog? Yeah. The quote is bug. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, so you fucked up. I, I'm so sorry I portrayed Deborah Landis as wow. this crazy as person. This idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I am the idiot. <laughs> so now let's go to June 24th, 1983. Twilight Zone, the movie, finally opens in theaters. And it opens number four behind Return of the Jedi in its fifth week of release, by the way. Understandable. And also behind Superman 3 and Porky's 2. Porgy's Ooh. 2 is hilarious. Two yeah. very different no, movies. <laughs> that's a hard choice that weekend, right? Well, yeah. The worldwide gross for Twilight Zone the movie was 29 million and remember the budget was around 10 million, so it was a financial success. Yeah. Enough so that um Carol Serling, the widow to Rod, she was able to get the ball rolling then on the 80s version of the Twilight Zone, which um also was on CBS. Yeah. I'm just so like shock. I mean, I guess there there were so many monster movies that year, but the fact that it, I mean, it debuts at four. It should have been more. You're saying. I feel like now better. with like the culture we have now, if there was a movie that came out where people died during the making of it, I feel like people would just macabrely like macabrely macabrely macabrely. They would probably flock to see it to be like, oh, this is the movie that fucking killed people. Um, I'm sure the reviews probably didn't help. They were extremely harsh for Landis and Spielberg. Oh, wow. But very positive for Dante and Miller. Were Siskel and Ebert on TV by then? Yeah. Oh, I bet we get a hot they, review they, from No, them. I can tell you right now. It's exactly what I just said. Praise for Dante and Miller and yeah. Landis and Spielberg fumbled the ball. Yeah. <laughs> That's universally what every reviewer thought. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what um, other movie opened in June 1983? What's up? Trading Places. Hey! And so that received unanimously great reviews, grossed like $90 million, you know, in early 1980s Young, money. Young, hot wow. Eddie Murphy. Yeah, and um, Paramount even promoted Landis for an Oscar nomination 
for best director. Okay. But also around this time, you know, there's a little thing called the legal aftermath. <laughs> We have both the Chen and Lee families filing lawsuits asking $200 million in damages. And it's a catch-all list of defendants. I'm But sure, we'll get I'm to sure that later. I'm sure they got later. some blockbuster attorneys that, you know, knew how to structure these settlements and stuff. Exactly. And in order to get the most amount of money. I need cash now. Um, yeah. Another um, wrongful death uh, suit came from Vic's daughters, Carrie and Jennifer. That was settled in 1983 for um, $900,000. So Jennifer moved on. Yeah. Sergeant Tom Buds of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, he's the one that now starts off the criminal investigation. Um, among the findings, three beer cans were found in the helicopter. Oof. But this had nothing to do really it with It didn't the case. lead to anything, okay. really. But it's still food for thought. Could it have been the cameraman or yeah, something? Like yeah, like freaked out because he's yeah. up in the air with so all these explosions. Let's not jump up. to conclusions. Another finding was that Frank Marshall had signed the $2,000 petty cash check. Mm. And he knew about the children's hiring. I'm sure everybody did. But, you know, Frank Marshall proved elusive to cops and any questioning. Gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Directors Guild of America, they formed a safety committee among the new guidelines. You know, no more live ammunition, more detailed walkthroughs, etc. <laughs> and some people like director Richard Brooks, who had directed Vic and Blackboard Jungle, didn't think they went far enough. He posed the question, like, are directors really qualified to handle these really complex special effects? Facts. That's a not. great point. Yeah. I mean, we saw the footage. Yeah, like, that was intense. Bullets. And It's guns. intense watching real it. bullets. Yeah. So yeah, now they they have the grand jury hearings to decide whether or not to um, go to criminal trial, and so that's happening around the same time as the movie opened. A guy named Gary Kesselman was assigned to the case. He was like a veteran prosecutor. Yeah. So the defense team for Landis was he headed by that Harlan Braun guy um, that was contacted when the accident first happened. Oh, okay. This is a preliminary this, hearing. This is a grand jury. Yeah, and so James Camomile, remember, he's the guy that actually detonated those fatal explosives. Mm -hmm. He was granted immunity to, so that he could help the prosecution build their case. Wow. So the guy that actually created the fireball. He cut a deal. Yeah. So he Turned was... states. He's snitching. In, in <laughs> April 1984, a judge ruled that, quote, This court believes that a crime to wit, involuntary manslaughter, was in fact committed by certain principles. So it's going to go to trial now, yeah. criminal trial. And John Landis would become the first Hollywood director ever to be criminally charged for deaths on a movie set. Um, and we have a clip. If, if anyone had ever thought that such a horrendous thing could happen, obviously we would have stopped. And uh, this is a terrible, terrible accident that obviously will cause pain and anguish to all of us for the rest of our lives. So that was during the preliminary hearing, one of his own, the only times he spoke. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, they were probably like, sit down, shut the fuck yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> People don't like you, John. Yeah. So, yeah, to be clear now, the trial's beginning. We have five defendants. Director John Landis, who's going to get the brunt of it. Associate producer George Folsey Jr. Unit production manager Dan Allingham. Pilot Dorsey Wingo. And special effects coordinator Paul Stewart. 
the official charges, two counts of child endangerment and or labor code violation for Landis, Folesley, and Allingham, and then three counts of gross negligence for Wingo, Stewart, and then Landis got that one as well. Wingo is a crazy one. Like, yeah, that's the sad. That's the saddest one. There's no reason why um, the pilot should have been charged. So James Neal and his law partner James Sanders, they were hired to defend Landis. They were considered the like top trial lawyers by Forbes in 1985. Kentucky Fried Lawyer. Yeah, like we're talking. Nice callback. Nice callback. Nice. Best this is like representation. Uh, like you the can OJ, get. the 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 was it the, uh, the dream team? The dream team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the dream team, and they replaced Harlan Braun, the guy that was originally representing original... Landis. Yeah, okay. Because get this, he was going after Spielberg really hard oh, in the shit. press. Oh, I'm sure. And they said, you know what, move over. So they yeah, replaced yeah. him, but he did stay on as um Folesley's attorney for the trial, just not Landis's. And another person who was replaced was um, the DA, Gary Kesselman, for the prosecution. He wasn't exciting enough. We don't really know why he was replaced exactly, but... Um, you said he wasn't exciting enough. Uh, well, that's what the, the, <laughs> that's what the gist I'm getting. But okay. So he was replaced by a DA named Leah D'Agostino, and she's kind of like a brash, telegenic Oof, personality. She She'll, don't take no guff. Yeah. Don't bring me that guff, because I ain't taking it. <laughs> She'll say outlandish I things. Guff. I ain't want that guff. She's self-confident, but also importantly, she never lost a case. So she was also very good. So she came on, remember, after Kesselman. She wanted to go further against Landis. During the prelims, the uh, defense asked her, if the crew had known the stunt to be dangerous, then why not pursue murder charges? And then she responded, quote, frankly, I wish second degree murder charges were involved here. That's big. You guys saw the footage. It's like that fire is so over the top. The wind is so crazy. Um, it's it's just completely gross negligence. And I think it literally could probably have gotten charged with second degree murder because of yeah. It. So the Alpha Bomber had nicknamed uh, D'Agostino the Dragon Lady. Who's the Alpha Bomber? <laughs> A guy she had prosecuted. Everybody, <laughs> so you're just gonna throw in hey yeah. uh, this out the Alpha Some Bomber. Oh case. yeah, this guy that everyone if, hold knows. on, hold on, back, hold the fort. <laughs> if I had said the Unabomber, you yes. wouldn't have stopped me. Well, yeah, no, no. that's because we've heard of the Unabomber. Okay, everybody, Google Alpha Bomber. Anyway, elsewhere, um, a guy named Hal Needham, who started off as a stunt guy and became a Hollywood director, said, quote, if they convict him, every goddamn director in this business is going to be afraid to say action. So that is a very real sentiment that, that was going through Hollywood at the time. Oh, I'm sure. There wasn't a lot of vocal support or even bashing him like it was just kind of silence but they were all watching and waiting absolutely and do, do you think landis took a break at this time yeah probably just to deal with the uh, yeah i'm gonna go ahead and say no he never stopped working but no. to be fair imagine all the legal fees would you stop working he was still a proven commodity in Hollywood to make money. I like how Hollywood did not even stop like hiring him for anything. There well, was no pause at all. It's the same with sports. If there's like um, someone's under in an investigation for something, or they're even like on a trial, they go, you know, there hasn't been a verdict, so this guy's going to play week four. Like we're not going to suspend well, not him anymore, because though. of it. Ah, well, still they, a little bit. 
what was yeah. it? The Antonio Patri- Brown. Antonio Brown with yeah. the Patriots. But he played last season while he was under investigation for assault. But the Patriots let him go. Yeah, the Patriots were like, yeah, get out of here. Well, you know what? Get money talks. Here, Ex- that's exactly what it is. And so um, he went on to do a little music video called Thriller. Landis did that? Yes. He yes. directed that? He did. Yeah. Um, so after that, he directs a yuppie nightmare noir thriller comedy called Into the Night with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Jeff Goldblum. And it mm-hmm. features a ton of cameos from other directors like mm-hmm. David Cronenberg. And interestingly enough, while, he, you know, this is like it was released 85, so probably shot around like 84. Landis plays an Iranian killer in it. Wow. <laughs> like he acts in it murderer and then he did spies like us um a comedy with dan Aykroyd and chevy chase yep and then landis would go on to shoot three amigos in early 1986 and he would edit it on nights and weekends during the trial (laughs) he was on the stand editing yeah (laughs) yeah he's like uh what was that question (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it was like the old big machines that he had (laughs) too he was cutting cut, the film. Yeah, cutting the <laughs> film and printed it. So as the now as the as the trial loomed, um the key witness, remember an eyewitness, Frank Marshall, continued to elude questioning. So this guy, he was served with an international subpoena <laughs> in London on the set of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh wow. Which Spielberg was uh producing. I didn't know they filmed that in London. I like how they yeah. had to go to London to film that for And with reason. London <laughs> town. No, get Isn't this. Isn't it based in like San Francisco? <laughs> well, guys, London ever, was a character. You ever heard of movie magic? No. Anyway. No. Yeah, and Star Wars wasn't really shot in outer space. Okay. What the oh. fuck? So with the assistance of Scotland Yard, they sent a young employee of the American embassy to um, hand deliver the summons to Frank Marshall, who was staying at this place called St. James Club. So they speak on the phone, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm around. I'll be around later. Well, he proceeds to just flee in London, <laughs> packs up all his Bathroom stuff. break. Yeah, and goes to Paris <laughs> on, a pi- on a private jet paid for by Amblin Entertainment. Oh, shit. And after Roger Rabbit, Marshall would go to China to film uh, Empire of the Sun. Mm. So he and Spielberg were worlds away during this. Yeah. I Los love how Angeles everyone just turns trial. into Carmen Sandiego. They're just yeah. off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the jurors for this uh, criminal trial, it skewed older. The judge was a guy named Roger Boren. He was um, Mormon. He spent two and a half years prosecuting the Hillside Strangler. Wow. Ooh. And that was uh, the longest criminal trial in U.S. history Was that at the Richard time. Ramirez? No. No. No, that was the dating. A... No, that. No, neither. <laughs> that I was a shoe keep... bomber. I was myself <laughs> the dating game killer and the night stalker. It doesn't matter. He he yeah. went on hills and strangled people. <laughs> How dare this guy. So the in, hills have stranglers. Ah. So now it's September 1986, okay? And there's a spectacle outside as the court proceedings begin. All the infotainment reporters and press are there. In her opening statements, D'Agostino said, quote, You won't see Mika Lee or Vic Morrow walk in from the back of this courtroom and put their heads back on. And then on the defense side, James Neal said that the shot was, you know, carefully planned and went terribly wrong because of unforeseeable events. 
And so some of the the witnesses for the prosecution, um, the star witness was actually Donna Schumann, the production secretary, whose yeah. husband found the kids. And, <laughs> Sounds and, so bad when you say it like that. Why is she the star witness? Uh, she claimed that Landis and Folesley thought that they would go to jail if word got out about the kids. Basically, that they had told her as much. Oh. But this was, that was a little problematic because she was then questioned, why are you revealing this now? Yeah, exactly. And why didn't you tell that Kesselman guy during the preliminary hearing? Yeah. And she said she did, though, right? Oh, exactly. She went on to say, like, yeah, I did tell Kesselman. But then now Kesselman came back and said... She never told me. Kesselman is the first prosecutor who was was weirdly taken off the case. case. And so uh, Kesselman denied that Schumann had ever told him that. And um, D'Agostino stood by her star witness, Donna, and um, basically alienated Kesselman in the press. And this was all great for the defense because the prosecution just looks like a big mess now. Yeah. So next uh, big event was the, the screening of the footage. For the jury. So they gather at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills. It's so odd to me. Like, why not just wheel in a fucking TV? No, they they need to the they, they needed a visceral impact for the jury. Says who? Like whose idea? Oh, pro- so it was the, the prosecution's idea. Of it's this D'Agostino. She wants a show. Yeah. Okay. But you you thought the footage we saw was bad in this theater? It's it's twenty eight minutes. It was even worse. Like they were actually they minutes. were actually seeing floating body parts. And oh blood. oh my, my god. god! Yeah, really awful. Then the the parents' testimonies came a day later. So Micah's mother, Kim, and Renee's dad, Mark, they both sobbed in the court and denied again knowing about the explosives or the helicopter. And then the other two parents, um, they were actually the first eyewitnesses to speak. Wow. What did I say her name was? Um, Sean Wei. Chen. I like how you stumbled exactly the same way the, the second time. I mean, <laughs> I want to do the name justice. Yeah, That's it's tough. the thing. It's a tough one. So she spoke through a Mandarin interpreter and she said that Folesley had told her that everything was safe, it's just loud, and was told to evade the fire people. And then Daniel Lee, the other eyewitness, you know, parent, had said that the explosions were more powerful than anything he had ever seen in 30 years of living in Vietnam. Wow. wow. Yeah. And he didn't have any tears, just rage in the mm. courtroom. Jeez. Yeah. So th- those were all, all four very powerful testimonies for the prosecution. In the courtroom itself, in the audience section, um, I started to fill in with um, celebrities who wanted to support John Landis. Wow. And I, I should mention, though, that it wasn't real popular to support John Landis at this time. So it was making quite a statement. Yeah. Uh, he has said himself that he lost a lot of friends over this. Oh, I'm and sure. And Spielberg, of course, turned a cold shoulder immediately. <laughs> yeah, like, Landis who? John what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Never heard of the guy. John, I was in the bathroom. John Wick? What are you talking about? I was in the bathroom. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> Some of the celebrities that uh, came to support were um, David Cronenberg, Michael Ritchie, who had curiously enough directed Vic Morrow and the Bad News Bears. Not so, Michael Richards. So who's who of people um, so far? Yeah, Paul Bartel, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, and Dan Aykroyd. Wow, the wow. last two are yeah. big ones. 
the jury didn't really care about those guys because they remember they skewed older. Yeah. But D'Agostino, the prosecutor, was mad when the actor Ralph Bellamy showed up because he was of the jurors generation. Oh. Ralph Bellamy starred in um, His Girl Friday, among other movies. And he had a career resurgence appearing in um, Trading Places as the, one of the villains. Oh, right. With wow. Don Amici. Gotcha. So, yeah. he And then he would give his opinions outside to the press supporting Landis. And to make a point, D'Agostino subpoenaed him. Wow. But then the judge threw it out. But still, it was it was to say basically say like, yeah, you want to go speak to the press, be prepared to speak in court, mm. and to kind of scare away other celebrities doing the same thing. She was right. a hot shot. She didn't fuck around. No, She's she a dragon wasn't. Lady. She wasn't afraid. She's a dragon lady. She you think the, the alpha bomber the scares alpha bomber, her? Yeah, the, um, the alpha bomber doesn't scare easily. By the way, I mean other witnesses, <laughs> firemen recalled they'd never seen such huge explosions on a movie set. This was also another debacle because there were like purged files and, and possibly a departmental um, cover-up. I think that much is very clear. Yeah, because... When cause, call sheets go missing, it, there's a cover-up happening. It doesn't get lost very easily. It's basically like a log of that day who's going to be on set. So it's very interesting that those are missing. They do yeah. not go missing. There were damning testimonies from uh, Jack Tice, one of the firemen on the set, the two cameramen that were in the helicopter. They recalled the horror inside the helicopter. Oof. A guy named Steve Lidecker, one of the cameramen, he said he talked to Dorsey Wingo, the pilot, about the experience. Explosions and that Wingo said, as long as they don't get bigger, it'll be okay. But they were bigger at 2.20 a.m. Mm. And then he also claimed that Landis told him, quote, we may lose the helicopter. So pretty strong stuff. But luckily for Landis, the prosecution keeps stumbling. Mm-hmm. One really important problematic witness for the prosecution was that effects tech James Camomile. Imagine this, a guy that sets off the fireball that causes the helicopter to crash, he gets granted immunity in the prelims. Yeah. So, gee, who, who's the guy with the target on his back for the defense? Like, he, he was the easiest target. It's his fault. The, and basically, Chamomile seemed to concede that he alone caused the accident when he took the stand. What? Yeah. So wait, wow! Was this? Do you think there was some coordinated deal? I, I'm not I'm sure. Thinking. I think he got some money slipped to him. Is he saying it, it was his idea? Not necessarily. So that's, it was that's, my fault. Well, the thing is, who's a supervisory who, uh, at fault situation? Well, that's Landis. That's the problem. Everybody's. Confused no one about nothing. who was in charge yeah. that night. This is like the CIA. Like eight different people don't know who's exactly who's, who's in charge here. Yeah, William Goldman, the screenwriter, famously said in Hollywood, "Nobody knows anything," and you can apply that to the set that night. Okay. Yeah, nobody knows anything. <laughs> I know nothing. I don't know nothing. Um, I was in a freaking bedroom. <laughs> um, so the prosecution closed um, up shop with a field trip to the Indian Dunes. Ooh, that's fun. And um, she rested her case. And the original, the guy that got the ball rolling for the investigation, the sheriff Tom Buds. Buds. He was um, Buds on the case. He again. was not a fan of her meandering approach. Now the defense. I'm with Buds in the Alpha Bomber. She's a little too much. <laughs> I don't like this, Diagostino. Uh, <laughs> okay, she ain't my uh, cup of tea, is it? And now it's the defense's turn, and there's a surprise announcement. Guess who's going to take the stand first? The alpha killer. 
John Landis. <laughs> oh, shit. I was way off. Dun, dun, I was hoping dun. for the <laughs> So this is in February now, 1987. And he's like sullen. That's a lot of time. Yeah. He's lucky he got that much time because he's like, look at all these classics I made in the last five years. I know. like He's like a blockbuster like, yeah. fucking director. And um, D'Agostino offers him a Kleenex and says, is it easy for you to cry, Mr. Landis? And then he looks at her and he's like, no, but she's basically saying, you know, like, you're not really sad about any cry of this. On Crocodile yeah, tears. Yeah, coward. No. It made her look bad, I think. Yeah, she seems like a bully. She's yeah. going for it, and it's not really paying off. So they her. talk about movie making as a worthwhile enterprise, you yeah. know, and he, the, he mentions the segment tackles racism, right? There's redeeming value He's trying to, save to the, the content. The, he's trying to save the world. With this Twilight Zone episode. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, like he had made a great yeah. movie. Yeah. And he contradicted and challenged like all the prosecution witnesses. Ooh. But he did admit that it was possible that he had said the lower, 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 fire, fire, fire. That thing. means he absolutely said it. And about the kids, he said he intended to honor the um, spirit of the law, but not the letter of the law. So he had the parents their parents as the guardians instead of the tr usual trained teacher welfare so worker. He, he bend some rules. Yeah, and um, he said the stumble and horror in the clip before the accident was just good acting. That was planned. So he, the reason he brings up the stumble is to say... It wasn't out of control. That, that's not a real stumble because yeah, it was the acting. effects weren't so crazy. Yeah, it, that, that it was all going as planned until basically that fireball. Because they look like they're literally afraid and running no, for No, I their know. Lives. That he's saying <laughs> yeah. that's, that's Vic being a really good actor. Yeah, that's not the wind pushing yeah. him over. Yeah, yeah. I don't, that gust of like explosion behind him. Wow, that's calculated. Because I was like, why would they even bring that up? Yeah. But that's a very calculated move on his part. Yep. Yeah. Before I get to the verdict in just a second. Get this. Oh, here we go. Um, Dorsey Wingo wanted to take the stand, the pilot. Bring oh, on yeah, Wingo. Like, get Bring me on, on that the fucking stand. Get him to no, the but Wingo. Get this. Get this. He had made statements to the NTSB in the past that made Landis look bad, so they didn't want him to take the stand. Ooh. Um, and Landis even befriended him a little bit and took him, went to a motocross race with him. <laughs> You think I that, got two tickets to motocross. <laughs> to the X big. Games. What do you say, And get Wingo? this. <laughs> Wingo almost had his particular case dismissed, and they had had secret meetings, but that never amounted it to anything. It should have been dismissed. Yeah. What the hell's going on with So he did take the Give stand. Wingo a break. No, wait till you hear this. Uh -oh. Wait till you hear this. Well, he wait. did take the stand, and he, he wondered aloud whether, you know, why didn't Vic just get out of the way? Shut Oh, up. my God. All right, now yeah. Wingo could get fucked at this point. I am right, not shitting you. You were in, now you're out, Wingo. That's disgusting. At this time, it seems like the dumbest people are flying helicopters. Like It, it seems like a tough thing <laughs> to <know>. do. <laughs> Best and the brightest. <laughs> I can that, fly this fan around in the sky. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm All the right. dumbest guy from my high school. It's just so funny <laughs> how quickly we, we turned. I did a 180 on Wingo. Yeah, we fuck liked, Wingo. Yeah, three minutes later. All right. D'Agostino took three days to deliver the closing argument. 
the defense focused on chamomile, obviously, and the idea that it was an unforeseeable event that caused the accident that the defendant suffered too. And James Neal, Landis's attorney, brought up the fact that Landis had two small kids, one of them being Max Landis, by the way. Mm-hmm. And that every time he looks at his kids, he's going to see the faces of Mika and Renee. Yeah. And so um, the prosecution then delivered a rebuttal. I mean, you thought you heard it all from D'Agostino. She pulled out a potato and a straw, and she put the straw through the potato. This is her closing argument. Yeah, to demonstrate how easily, like, a piece of bamboo could have impacted the tail rotor. It was seen as, like, ridiculous. Yeah, it sounds... She like, is like, a like, clown. Some, like, suddenly yeah. she's, pu- she's pulling potatoes out, like... <laughs> Your potato puller. <laughs> Who is uh, working right. <laughs> at the Los Angeles district attorney at this point? So the jury deliberated for nine days. And then on May 29th, 1987, the verdict was given, which was not guilty on all counts. Wow. Oh. For everybody. We got a clip. We got a clip. Title of court and cause. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, John Landis, not guilty of involuntary manslaughter Oof. as charged in count one of the amended information. I'm shocked. I'm appalled. I'm disappointed because I believe she definitely looks like a dragon lady, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> she she kind of looks like Joan Crawford with the uh, the or, thing on her on her lip there. Or yeah. Joan Rivers. Or Joan yeah. Rivers! With yeah, black looks, hair. Looks dead. <laughs> hey, could you believe what John Landis was wearing? As I said before, I don't want to sound repetitious. was about as reckless as it can get. Well, it was just a wonderful time, and uh, I wish we could get the jurors uh, close for a minute. I, I want to kiss at least half of them, and... Hug the rest. Gross. Did he say he wanted to kill <laughs> half Look of them? Look at that blazer on yes. Wingo. Oh, kiss half. Yes. I thought he said I want to kill half of them. <laughs> Look at the blazer. What is that? Yeah, he looks like a booze bag. He looks yeah. like he brings his three beers with that's, him. In the that's, that's the blazer you wear for a funeral for, for a moose. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to maintain my buzz while I'm flying this I wish we could get the jurors uh, close for a minute. I, I want to kiss at least half of them and hug the rest. Uh we're just astounded and uh, we're very grateful. In an exclusive interview with director John Landis, he told me his thoughts today about the accident and the jury's verdict. You All said right, before let's that the get ready. Tomorrow, Mika Lee and Renee Chan were really not connected to the trial. Well, by not connected, I mean that the trial and the, the are, you know, are being found not guilty doesn't change the tragedy. It doesn't change the accident. I've learned that uh, the concept of an accident is terrifying. Uh, to people okay and, well something someone must be there must be somebody's fault yeah um, your fault you know what's terrifying <laughs> a helicopter cutting a head off. In the accident I, I, being there no I, I i don't see the trial and their deaths the same and I, I mean regardless of the trial there's still the terrible tragedy that it has changed our lives yeah. we are we are different i'm very grateful grateful to the jury and that they could see that it was an unforeseeable accident uh, it was pretty foreseeable. I saw it coming. Wow. Yeah. Warner Brothers settled the civil lawsuits um, for the families a few days after the trial. Um, $2 million to each family. Still not enough. Yeah, a little less than to the To the Morrow family? No, 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 no. They Remember... Um, Jennifer and Carrie, his daughter, Vic Morrow's daughter. They got 900 got, grand. Yeah. Um, that was settled in the early 80s. Okay. In like 83. This one was for the families of uh, Mika and Renee. 
Wow. They okay. each got two million. A little less than the two hundred million, but you know. <laughs> yeah, just a tad. It's still something. Not enough, though, as you said. Not nearly enough. A strange irony is that um, there's a movie called Braddock Missing in Action Three, starring Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> what there a movie. what a title there better be that um, released in 1988 well during production in the philippines a helicopter hired by the canon film group crashed into manila bay killing four filipino soldiers and wounding five others on the same exact day as the twilight zone verdict wow wow that yeah makes, that makes you think it is crazy that like even the dga and like all these different things they were they started making new rules just because of this movie oh yeah like, like safety no, commission no live yeah. ammunition anymore yeah they didn't think They're of like, that before hey guys it's a movie he's not supposed to really die like <laughs> yeah. how else are we gonna shoot somebody there shouldn't be an element of that much danger on a set like hitchcock used hershey's syrup in the shower scene in psycho he didn't right, use for real blood, blood. <laughs> yeah <laughs> for realism that pussy <laughs> <laughs> everything with this episode the, all the information came from this book outrageous conduct i'm gonna plug it again and that you know shutter produced cursed films episode was excellent plus there's this person called vic morrow fan on youtube that basically compiled four to five hours of just all the coverage of this wow they were all amazing resources this Though, according to the Chicago Tribune, outrageous conduct didn't sell well. Yeah. I don't know if people were afraid of it or sick of the story or what. But if you want to buy it, it's uh, Outrageous Conduct by Steve Farber. It's on Amazon.com uh, in paperback used uh, for $902.81. <laughs> That's nothing. <laughs> and there's another one paperback, eight hundred seventy-seven ninety-five. You can buy it on layaway if you want. Yeah. But you might be able to find a, a cheap hundred dollar. Yeah, that's copy the cheapest somewhere too. It says the cheapest here is one hundred and forty-five dollars. If you well, want to go to the dark web, you can find. Something. Uh, I, it didn't sell. It's out of print. Uh, I guess that's what happened. That's yeah. what happened. It's an excellent book, though. Yeah, riveting. Absolutely. So you want to hear the epilogue? Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So what happened to some of these people? George Folsey um, Jr. continued to work with Landis throughout the 80s. In fact, the movies of Landis would start out with this credit, a Landis Folsey film. Hmm. That partnership kind of fizzled, though. But so Folsey um, is also an editor. So he edited everything from the Landis movies in the 80s to movies like Dirty Work with Norm MacDonald. I love Dirty Work. And Hostel. Of course you do. So this Folsey guy. (laughs) You ask Kyle, like, have have you seen Godfather 2? No. Have you seen Dirty Work? 3,000 times. So so you're a fan. You're a fan of Folsey. I guess so. So, That's such good editing when he <laughs> when he won't give the bully his, um, his milk money and then he gets thrown in the dumpster right away right at the beginning. It, it is a, a great, perfect, mo- a very uh, underrated classic movie. moment in uh, yeah. <laughs> AFI history. history. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Edited by George Folsey Jr. after he was acquitted. Okay, I like this guy uh, now. So Dan Allingham, <laughs> let's, let's you know the unit, the unit production coordinator, Dan Allingham, who first met with Vic at his home to talk about the stunts and all that. His last major credit was a movie called Communion with Christopher Walken in 1989. Wow. So, so either the industry chased him out or Christopher Walken just scared the shit out of him and he wow. stopped, <laughs> stopped <Yeah>. working. <laughs> 
So after, yeah, maybe after Christopher Walken killed someone also. Yeah, he's like, I, yeah. I killed. He's like, hey, man, come here. I got to talk to you about something. Wow. I By the way, I killed Natalie Wood. <laughs> yeah. as, We're both murderers. As is obvious, none of us have a Walken impression. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. we would very bust it out. shaky. Now get in the car. Yeah, we're going to have Jay Moore here. Um, oh, God. I don't know. The special <laughs> wow. There you go. That was hey, pretty good. He's coming. Wow. I can't do it. Wow. Wow. Um, so the, the, the special effects coordinator, Paul Stewart, he worked on Moonlighting the series in the 80s and I guess struggled at first, but then he went on to do a bunch of movies like um, Die Hard with a Vengeance and the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. But his filmography stops after 2001. Wait, there's a Tim Burton Planet of the Apes? Are you Shut joking? Uh, are you I'm kidding me? I'm not joking. Me? Okay, okay well, I, wait, Kyle, we got to I don't have time for this. <laughs> like, I don't wow. have time for this. We do not have time for this, yes, clearly. Yes, it sucks. Yes, but there is a version <laughs> that Tim Burton directed. It's as good as his Charlie and the Chocolate Factory wow. adaptation. I don't mind it. Dorsey Wingo, the pilot. Um, he was the director of operations at Western Helicopters during this whole thing, and he fought to have his pilot's license uh, reinstated. And not surprisingly, he, he left the the line of that line of work. Wow! So yeah, not into helicopters anymore. I don't fly no more. He's probably somewhere in Texas sipping on a whiskey, <laughs> chugging three beers. James Camomile, um, the tech that you know, lit the fireball, the fatal fireball. He remained in FX tech, but was no longer allowed to detonate explosives. Ooh, Probably wow. a good idea, right? That's important. Yeah. I don't think I would want him to <laughs> after that. No. So um, he worked on everything from the hunt for Red October to Broken Arrow and Live Free or Die Hard in 2007, which was his last credit. So um, Daniel and Kim Lee, um, Mika's parents, they divorced. After the trial. Oof. And then Mark and Sean Wei Chen, Renee's parents, um, they had two more children, a boy and a girl. Mm. Remember Carol Serling, the widow of Rod? Well, guess what? She died in January 2020. We're, we're oh, getting, wow. We're getting deep into the uh, yeah. cast of All the players. Yeah. Not of COVID, by the way. Wow. <laughs> of just old age. Where's the helicopter today? Um, so <laughs> um, the Twilight Zone series The helicopter itself, got married two years later and is happy <laughs> ever after and living in Montana. The, the Twilight Zone series itself was revived multiple times in 1985, 2002, and in 2019 with Jordan Peele. Wow. And, um, I remember watching that. Get this. You want to hear something? Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall... They got married in 1987. Wow. wow. They remained big-time producers. He, he went on to direct as well, like movies like Alive and Congo. She's currently the president of Lucasfilm. And she, oh. she received the Thalberg Award in 2018. I think we know Spielberg's work, right? After Empire of the Sun. I just know Animaniacs. AI, AI, that's all yeah, I saw. He, he did, um, you know, another Indiana Jones, um, a weird movie called Always, and then AI, Hook, AI. and so on and so on. Um, he's spoken publicly only once about The Twilight Zone. On April 13th, 1983, he told the LA Times, Go fuck yourselves, get away from me. This has been the most interesting year <laughs> of my- I'll ruin you. <laughs> This has been the most interesting year of my 
film career, it has mixed the best. The success of E.T. with the worst. The Twilight Zone tragedy. It has made me grow up a little more. The accident cast a pall on all 150 people who worked on this production. We are all, all happen to be in the bathroom. We are still sick to the center of our souls. No movie is worth from dying bathroom. for. <laughs> I think people are standing Flush. up much more n- now than ever before. M- more, much more now <laughs> than ever before to producers and directors who ask too much. If something isn't safe, it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell, cut. God bless America. So he's basically saying, John Landis sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine if you're on any of their movies and a PA yells, cut? They'd be like, you're fucking done in this town. <laughs> Gosh. Do you know like in the cooler when they bring the guy in the back and they pound on his hand? No, yeah. that's casino. It's casino, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you that's, a righty that, or a lefty? That's what, that's what Spielberg does to you if you say anything <laughs> yeah. out of fucking... Mr. Spielberg, I think we ought to cancel the shot altogether. Yeah. I know I'm just a PA, but... He'll have you liquefied. Somewhere. Spielberg would be like, get him out of here. Yeah. Kathleen, Frank. Yeah. Um, John Landis continued to make movies. Um, his next project after the trial was a little movie called Coming to America. Wow. A hundred million plus blockbuster. Interestingly enough, cameos from his old pal Ralph Bellamy and Donna Michi, yep. as well as his attorneys from the criminal trial, James Neal and James Sanders. That's cer- that's completely insane. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because uh, they had a very rocky kind of touch and go relationship. Mm-hmm. Him and um, Eddie Murphy and John Landis. Right. They had a good time on Trading Places, though. They had a great time on Trading Places, and I think... I think they were just they just got along. Yeah, and he wanted him for coming to America and then Eddie Murphy fought for him and they didn't want John Landis probably because of the stigma still hanging around from the Twilight Zone murders. Well, yeah. Yeah. You want a guy that loaded, you know? <laughs> the way Eddie Murphy saw it, he said this is his quote, I figure I'd give the guy a shot because his career was fucked, as Eddie Murphy said in this February 1st, 1990 Playboy interview. But he wound up fucking me, Eddie Murphy said. As it turned out, he resented that I didn't go to his Twilight Zone trial. So Eddie Murphy was asked Mm -hmm. from a destitute John Lennis, will you please come to my trial and stand up for me like those other people did? Yeah. Who eventually kind of like. Like Ralph Bellamy. Like Ralph Bellamy, who turned it around for him. Yeah. He he was so desperate. He asked for anyone. And Eddie Murphy was so big then. Yeah. um, So he kind of always resented that about him. Even though Eddie Murphy's a big star, John Landis is a director. But, you know, he, Eddie Murphy's <laughs> so much bigger than him. Once the you jur- think? <laughs> once the journalist in this Playboy interview kind of pressed Eddie Murphy, he said, I don't want to say John Lynch's was guilty or he was innocent, but if you're directing a movie and two kids get their heads chopped off at fucking 12 o'clock at night when there ain't supposed to be kids working and you said action, then you have some sort of responsibility. No I, doubt about it. I think it. I agree with that. Yeah. That is a pretty hardcore uh, detrimental thing to say. Basically saying, fuck you, John Landis. I don't like who you are right now. Like, they used to be friends. Like, I've heard this story from the set of uh, Coming to America in which there was a very attractive girl that Eddie Murphy was playing against who was his, like, love interest in the movie. And then John Landis went up to him and he said, you know, this is from the same interview, do not fuck that girl, he said. 
And Eddie Murphy's like, what the fuck do you care about anything? <laughs> and like, and like sounds, they had that type of relationship at this yeah, time. Yeah, sounds very, very healthy. And yeah. Like, yeah, like, why are you a director who's actually... Why does... What does he care who Eddie Murphy is fucking? Yeah, and, and that could have been in a time maybe they weren't friends and stuff. John Landis has been, like, on a very roller coaster ride of uh, career. They, they would go on to work with each other again. In Beverly Hills Cop 3. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah, that came out in 1994. And it was a big flop. I guess he believed in his ability. Do you as know a why three didn't work out? Because uh, no Judge Reinhold in number three. Oh, probably yeah. Probably why. Judge <laughs> Reinhold is the thing that makes or breaks movies. But yeah. they did bring back Bronson um, Pinchot. Bronson Pinchot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Balky Bartok <Bartogimus> yeah. himself. <laughs> and another uh, fact about Beverly Hills Cop 3 George Lucas makes a cameo. Does and he really? So that kind of shows that he's a, you know, unlike Spielberg, mm. he supports Landis. Oof. And another director he cast in one of his movies was Sam Raimi. Huh. And so guess who plays a doctor in Spider Man 2 to return the favor? John Landis. John Landis. <laughs> um, so after wow. the trial, we all know about Coming to America, Michael Jackson's Black or White video, obscure movie called Innocent Blood about vampires, Beverly Hills Cop 3, and then he directed The Stupids in 1996. Hey! Well done, Classic Tom Ar- film. Tom Arnold vehicle. <laughs> the stu- Can you imagine? Film. You go from the Twilight Zone criminal trial to directing the stupids. Yeah, <laughs> like, how stupid is that? Oh. Hey, Whoa, watch out on? now! It is on. Is this helicopter on? <laughs> and around that time, he told the Financial Times, "Quote: There was absolutely no good aspect about this whole story. The tragedy, which I think about every day, had an enormous impact on my career, from which it may possibly never recover." Well, I mean, he was pretty, 13 movies later after the stupids. He was right about that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he and so he directed a Don Rickles documentary called Mr. Warmth. Um, he did a Blues Brothers sequel called Blues Brothers 2000 Yuck. in 1998, which again was about as well received as Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yeah. His last movie was a thing called Burke and Hare in 2010. And yeah, that didn't really excite anybody either. <laughs> I'll, I will note that his what he claims is his favorite movie was um, Oscar in 1991 with Sylvester Stallone. And so in an interview with the L.A. Times in April 1991 to promote that movie, they started fielding questions about the Twilight Zone. And he was speaking out really for the first time. Wow. And he said, quote, the accident itself is so terrifying. I don't think that you put that behind you. I live with the Twilight Zone every day of my life asked if he feels responsible he said of course it was my set what people tend to forget in all this is the helicopter crashed less than a foot from where i stood it's not like i was removed from this somehow that's bullshit and less than a foot and well you know you got to embellish a little well he he did pop up very quickly he definitely it was definitely way more yeah and he's clapping yeah yeah right he's in that shot like clapping i think he's saying cut he's not like applauding it looks like he is. No, no, no. He's doing it to the camera. It's a. He's like, bravissima. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. You were so raw, Vic. Where are you, Vic? Yeah, where are you? Vic? And in the same, uh, at the same time, Stallone talked about Landis Ooh. saying, quote, the industry has forgotten because what happened to John, I think, was a real tour de force in finding a scapegoat. 
they maneuvered against him with a little too much zeal. Well, yeah, Dragon Lady went way too hard. Wait, Stallone said something that articulate? Like, <laughs> I swear to God, that was Stallone. You know, he's a he he's a good screenwriter. Him. You know, he wrote Rocky. He wrote well, Rocky. That's true. Yeah, I, in a porno. I'm, that's a good Stallone. I, uh, I'm still surprised he wrote that movie. Like, I don't believe Ben Affleck. Really I think did he much. stole it. On uh, Goodwill Hunting, he stole. It. I yeah. believe Stallone wrote Rocky Five. Though. <laughs> yeah, yeah and then no bill. Yeah, Serge's so, merit is long and gone. Another person that um, would speak out about this tragedy is John Landis's son, Max Landis. Oh, what, do we know this guy? What, he what, followed what? in his dad's footsteps as a writer, producer, director. <laughs> Among his credits are Chronicle, American Ultra, Victor Frankenstein, and Bright, which mm. Netflix claims was their most successful movie. They That's say stupid. that about every what? stupid one with Will Smith yeah, yeah. and the creature. With the alien yeah. cop. Yeah, where, where I saw the poster and I'm like, I'm not watching that. But they made it like a racial thing. Yeah. 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 He but was they a- say every movie, every TV show is their biggest thing. Um, he was attached to direct a remake of a, an American Werewolf in London that you know his dad had originally made, but oh wow, that I don't think that's going to happen anymore. Why not? <laughs> because he was canceled in 2017. What happened? Um, from Wikipedia, so I'm quoting Wikipedia here. Landis has been criticized for statements he has made about women, and he has been accused of abuse and sexual misconduct by several women and industry figures. And Max Landis is a big, like, he likes to go on and talk, like, on YouTube and Reddit and all over the internet. Instagram. Giving weird interviews that are candid. Instagram as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So apparently people were criticizing his daddy. uh, Or dad, excuse me. I don't mean to to ignite any fires. Um, So someone was criticizing him, and so then he... Took went to Reddit and and wrote quote occasionally just occasionally these days the internet still makes me a little sick to my stomach the fact that this accident which claimed three lives and gave my father PTSD for my entire time of knowing him I was born in 1985 is repeatedly retold with apocryphal elements and only cursory mention that there was a huge well prosecuted trial that ended in an acquittal. Based on, you know, it being an actual fluke accident. By the way, that was all caps for those last lines. Oh, wow. He went on to say it's called um, an accident and not an incident for a reason. And that his dad is really a sweet guy who can get a little too loud sometimes. So, yeah. I mean, I would defend my dad, too. Yeah. It would take a lot for me to actually turn on my dad like that. So... I don't know. I I guess I would have to in that circumstance. He was working. You know, it it's not like he went out of his way to hurt another person. Exactly. In in Malice I on truly But he didn't yeah. go out of his way to make it any safer for them. I know. It I didn't agree. occur to him to yeah. make it any safer. Right. Jennifer Jason Lee would go on to have a successful Hollywood career. Hell yeah. yeah. Um working Great getting an Oscar nomination for The Hateful Eight, oh. Qu- the Quentin Tarantino film. Interesting. And in the closing moments of Tarantino's interview on the Joe Rogan podcast, Tarantino mentions that Jennifer Jason Lee read the audiobook version of his book, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. And he also told Joe Rogan that she was perfect for it because her dad was Vic Morrow. So she knew all the references he loves old Hollywood and, and the stories. Yeah. yeah. And Joe Rogan was like, 
oh, okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And then the podcast ended. Yeah, no mention. No mention of the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Or the fact that Vic Morrow, you know, lost his head on his last movie. But yeah, that's okay. One final note about John Landis. What year What year is it right now? 20, 2021. Okay. And what month is it? It's late. It's like... We're it's almost a, in August. We're in late July. Uh, we're just 47 minutes away from being oh, August 1st. Okay. So John, John Landis is set to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland. And that is going to be on August 13th, 2021. And wow. they're going to show um, some of his films as well. Two days before my birthday. And so, yeah, he's uh, going to be honored. Wow, good for him. Should we... I didn't get the invite yet, but like, do you think we're gonna get it? Like, Max it, might send us it one. Is, it is Switzerland. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know if I can get there so easily. Well, you never know. You can book last minute standby and get a you know cheaper <laughs> yeah. ticket. Sometime. You know, one movie I don't think they're screening is Twilight Zone. No, yeah, they should. We're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> the director of Twilight Zone. You know, I'm from that's my Switzerland. Album. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, one of those bullshit film festivals. Oh yeah, they just give about dumb awards but yeah it's like fun yeah. to travel like who's heard of this yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah the switzerland commuter- <laughs> community switzerland. college yeah. Yeah. um so guys that's the twilight zone case Whoa. in its yeah. entirety wow there's actually one book that comes up if once when you look up outrageous conduct on um amazon and it is uh titled the rise and fall of captain methane an autobiography of a maverick. It's Dorsey Allen Wingo's autobiography. Wait, yeah. gotta be Wingo has spoken. Yeah. So I definitely am going to look that up and uh, read right. it for sure. We're going to do a follow-up mini-sode. Yes, that's, that's going to be on the Patreon. Even though it's been 10 hours, believe it or not, <laughs> there is stuff we left out. And there's yeah. another book called Special Effects Disaster at the Twilight Zone. Wow. Um, and it's got... Uh, not the, as good as outrageous no. conduct. <laughs> they have the actual screenshot of... Of um, the fires exploding with the with the helicopter overhead. Oh my! Right on the heart. Now cards. that's a little much. And that's thirty seven ninety four. So it might have done a little bit better than the one that's eight thousand dollars right now on oh Amazon. My God. <laughs> yeah. Well, it went up at, since the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. Eight thousand dollars. Well worth it though. But you know? yeah, shout out to uh, the North Hollywood Library for having that in yeah. stock. That's the only reason that Alejandro was even able to get that. Right. And I'm I'm never returning. No, you should sell it for ten thousand dollars online. Yeah. And we- <laughs> We've, a little gold brick sitting in front of you right now. We've pulled every single piece of information from this book. So oh, yeah. If you have any beef with any of the facts that we stated here, it ain't us, to, baby. Go to the North Hollywood Library. We were in the bathroom yeah. the whole time. We were in the fucking bathroom, okay? <laughs> I just want to say that um, I was very vociferous about hey, three times. us doing this t- Twilight Zone yep. podcast for the premiere episode. Absolutely. So, any, well, li- any lingering thoughts? <laughs> Wow, that, it was a lot. I, I gotta. I'm gonna let them linger, you know, <laughs> yeah. even after this. <laughs> I'll leave us with a uh, a question to ponder. Okay, uh, the one that came from the book Outrageous Conduct. Mm-hmm. Everybody involved in this case, from the beginning to the end, in some way succumbed to the magnetism of the movies. Mm. Mm. Ponder that shit. <laughs> let that sink in your head tonight, motherfuckers. Well, let us know what you guys think. We put the uh, teaser on our Instagram. It's at Death and Entertainment. And uh, yeah, let us know what you guys think. Who's to blame for this? Who needs to go to prison? Who didn't get their comeuppance? Who was in the bathroom? Uh, (laughs) 
We're gonna set. We have an email set up, uh, which is yes. It's death and entertainment at gmail.com. and an Instagram at death and entertainment. And, and quick question: what What are we calling you people? Like our fans, the Die Squad. Okay, we haven't really. I kind of hate that. <laughs> <laughs> De- oh, uh, deadheads. I mean, that, Has might, that, been, that might be taken. That, <laughs> that might be taken. Yeah. Um, diehards, I think. Hey, well, diehards, that's pretty good. Email any ideas you have to our email, deathandentertainment at gmail.com. Hell yeah. Um, or send us a message on Instagram. Tell us you want us dead or tell us how you want us dead. Um, <laughs> how do you want me dead? How do you want me dead? I'm Mac. <laughs> Um, I don't know. What else, Alejandro? That's it. That's I, it. I, I yeah, think I've just, said enough. Yeah, we just did it. All right, guys. First Ciao. episode down. See you guys <laughs> next week. Peace out. You have just heard... A true Hollywood murder mystery. I have never seen anything like this before. The movies, Broadway, music, television, all of it. A place that manufactures nightmares. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. Good night. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon.